Well, good morning again. It's good to see you. Thank you so much for bringing the church into this sanctuary this morning. Uh, if we've not had the opportunity to meet, if somebody that's new to Crosspoint, my name is Jamie. It's my joy and privilege to I'll be one of the pastors here. It's my joy to open up God's word with you all. And for those of you that are gathered with us for Crosspoint at home, thanks for bringing the church into your living room, maybe on your back porch as it's slightly cooler out these days. But thanks for inviting us into uh, those spaces. I get the opportunity to open up God's word with you all this morning as we continue this series called Come and See This Invitation in the Book of John for the better part of 2021. We're journeying through this, and if, even if you haven't been here before, you're newer to, to Crosspoint, we'll get you caught, caught up to speed. Uh, you'll be able to jump right in. We are, though, in the final kind of stages of the life of Jesus. He is moments away, really, from going to the cross. And so what we find in these chapters that we've been in the last couple weeks and will continue next week are, like, what are his final, like, encouragement, instruction, prayers? Like, if you think about the final things that you could say to somebody before you pass from this earth, right, you wouldn't be talking about trivial matters. It'd be like, what's most pressing on your heart? And so what Jesus has for us this morning, I believe, is something that I'm praying it'll be remarkably helpful, encouraging, transformative in our lives as we see this invitation to joy throughout this chapter we're going to be in. As we finish up John chapter 16, we'll be in verses 16 to, to 33 to fi finish out chapter 16. We're going to see this theme of an invitation to joy. And so I want to invite you, I'm going to read this text, but if you don't have a Bible, you can go to cplife.church. Click on uh, sermon notes, message notes. The text will be there. There's space for you to follow along with any of the notes and things that will be up on the slide. There's space for you to jot down your own thoughts and, and notes as well. So John chapter 16, let me read this, verses 16 through the end of the chapter, through 33. It says this. These are Jesus' words. It says this. A little while, and you will no longer see me. Again, a little while, and you will see me. Then some of his disciples said to one another, what is this that he's telling us? A little while and you will not see me. Again, a little while and you will see me. And because I'm going to the Father. They said, what is this that he is saying? A little while. We don't know what he's talking about. And Jesus knew that they wanted to ask him. And so he said to them, hey, are you asking one another about what I said? A little while and you will not see me. Again, a little while and you will see me. Truly, I tell you, you will weep and mourn, but the world will rejoice. You will become sorrowful, but your sorrow will turn into joy. When a woman is in labor, she has pain because her time has come. But when she has given birth to a child, she no longer remembers the suffering because of the joy that a person has been born into the world. So you also have sorrow now, but I will see you again. Your hearts will rejoice and no one will take away your joy from you. And in that day, you will not ask me anything. Truly, I tell you, anything you ask the Father in my name, he will give you. And until now, you have asked for nothing in my name. Ask and you will receive so that your joy may be complete. Verse 25, I've spoken these things to you in figures of speech. A time is coming when I will no longer speak to you in figures, but I will tell you plainly about the Father. And on that day, you will ask in my name. And I'm not telling you that I will ask the Father on your behalf. For the Father himself loves you because you have loved me and have believed that I came from God. I came from the Father and have come into the world. Again, I am leaving the world and going to the Father. And his disciples said, look, now you're speaking plainly and not using any figurative language. Now we know that you know everything and don't need anyone to question you. By this, we believe that you came from God. 
And Jesus responded to them, do you now believe? Indeed, an hour is coming and has come when each of you will be scattered to his own home and you will leave me alone. Yet I am not alone because the Father is with me. I have told you these things so that in me you may have peace. You will have suffering in this world, but be courageous. I have conquered the world. So these incredible words that Jesus gives to not only his disciples, but to us a couple thousand years later, this word that he has conquered the world. He's saying there will be suffering. Again, we've seen this over the last couple weeks as we've been journeying through the book of John. It has not been if you have suffering. It's like, no, it is coming. It will be here. It's, it's just a matter of when. There's trials, there's difficulties. And yet Jesus is saying it's possible to have joy because the joy that he's offering is not dependent on circumstances. It's not tethered to our suffering or to our you know, celebrations, but rather it's tethered to him, the reality of his life, his death on our behalf and his resurrection. And so there's this invitation for us. Now, Martin Lloyd-Jones, the late uh, pastor and theologian in his book called Spiritual Depression, he's dealing with this call, and really it's a, it's a challenge. I want to put before you, I'll read the, these words, that he's saying what we have as the church is an opportunity to display to a watching world what it looks like to be joyful. And he's not calling us to like kind of bury our heads in the sand or just ignore the pain of this world. Let's remember, I'm about to read you a quote from a book called Spiritual Depression. Like, he realizes there's brokenness, there's pain, there's melancholy, there's suffering. It's all there. And yet, he's saying, there is a joy that can be found in our calling. He says this, Christian people too often seem to be perpetually in the doldrums and too often give this appearance of unhappiness and of lack of freedom and absence of joy there is no question at all but that this is the main reason why large numbers of people have ceased to be interested in Christianity. In a world where everything has gone so sadly astray, we should be standing out as men and women apart, people characterized by a fundamental joy. Now, I wish I could say, amen, Dr. Martin Lloyd-Jones. I did that perfectly this week. You would be so proud of me. I had this just, I was, my life was characterized by joy, but the reality is, no, it's Continue. There's a struggle. It's a grind. There's this, this pain. This Even if we don't have the language for it. You guys, everyone else carried in stuff this morning. It's hard to deal with. But the issue here, and what I find so fascinating, is Jesus says in this text, he says, no one will take your joy from you. Like it's something that doesn't just disappear. So the issue is not the amount of joy that is available, but rather what are we doing with it? I heard one pastor and commentator on this ask this question, like are you and I, are we stifling joy? Are we subduing it? Are we, are we pushing it down by perhaps our own sin, our rebellion, our lack of repentance? Are we people that are just allowing the circumstances all right, to have the final say? Like, there's this joy, there's this fountain of life of joy. Now, again, not saying that the world is not broken and that it's not hard and difficult. It's not just to skip through life and sort of f this fake happiness. But there is this fountain of joy. How can we drink deeply from that? And he's asking us to consider, like, how many of us are just kind of pushing that down? It's not about a prayer to ask, like, hey, can there be more joy? There's enough joy. I'm just not tapped into it. And what Jesus is communicating to his disciples and communicating to us is there is a way to actually remember the truth, to be deeply connected to this source of joy. And so this morning I want to look at Jesus' words, and I believe he's laying out for us a way to have joy in the midst of pain and sorrow, 
Not joy in this sort of sadistic way that like, oh, pain and sorrow and difficulty, like that makes me joyful, but rather there is a pattern that we see in the scriptures. And so there's a joy in pain. There is a joy that we're invited into through the discipline, through the practice, the gift of prayer. And there is an absolute joy in Jesus, like his promise and his power that we see here at the end of this text. So let's look at these first verses, 16 to 22, and talk about this, this joy that's found like in and through pain. And so you see there's confusion, right? As we look back over verse 16, Jesus says, a little while, you're not going to see me. And then again, a little while, and you will see me. And the disciples are like, wait, what, what is he saying? Like, why is he being so cryptic here? Like, what is actually going on? But on the other side of the cross and the resurrection, and even what Jesus begins to lay out here, he knows that he's going to the cross. He's like, my friends, you're not going to see me in a short while. You will see me on a cross. It will look like Satan, the enemy, has defeated the Messiah. I will be put into a tomb for three days. You will not see me. And guess what? After that, new life that bursts forth right in the midst of this broken world. There's this whole new creation that's going to be ushered in. It's like, so you don't see me, but then you will see me. And he's laying out for us, I believe, this sort of pattern of the way that God so often works of pain, of trial, of difficulty that leads to newness of life. It's why Jesus speaks of a seed going into the ground. And unless it dies, it won't bring forth any new life. It's why Jesus would tell us to take up our cross and follow after him. That life somehow is found not in avoiding pain and sorrow, not in running from it, but asking the Lord, how are you working through this? What sort of joy are you bringing in and through this pain? Because if God can use the death of his son in this most horrific way to die of the cross, there is a joy that is found. But how do you respond to pain, right? I mean, if we were to sit down and have a conversation, I think many of us would say, well, Sometimes I just want to forget about it, right? Um, I want to avoid it. I want to deny it. I want to get away from it. I want to distract myself from it, right? That is why God releases shows on Netflix with all the episodes at one time so I can just binge them and forget about the pain. And we can sort of laugh at that, and it's not that I'm anti-binge watching a show, but if we asked our hearts what are going on, how often are we seeking to numb ourselves with even good gifts from the Lord, Maybe we can't even be alone with our own thoughts, and so we have to sort of somehow figure out ways to soothe ourselves, to medicate, to numb. We just can't deal with the pain and the difficulty, so how do you respond? And what the Lord is inviting us to consider is this, that he's not eliminating the pain, but what if he's enhancing your joy even through pain and difficulty? It brought to mind this one of my favorite songs, Don't You Want to Thank Someone, by the singer-songwriter Andrew Peterson. Um, and some of you may be familiar with these particular lyrics. If you're not, go listen to the song later. I will not sing them to you. That would be horrific. But uh, in this, he's talking about, and he's looking ahead to that time when Jesus comes back. Like When he splits the sky, he ushers in the new heavens and the new earth. Every tear is wiped away. How will we reflect on what we're living through right now? What if the pain and the difficulty and the trials and the suffering are meant some way, somehow, as crazy as it would seem, to actually allow us to experience more joy as we work through that? And so he pens these words and he sings this and he's talking about the world. He says, and when the world is new again, 
So we think about that time, and he says, and the children of the king. And so that's, that's us, sons and daughters of the almighty God and king. And we're children of the king. He says, we are ancient in their youth again. It's a fascinating line, right? That we will be ancient on and on and on forever. And yet, in our youth again, like somehow we don't, we don't grow old. Our bodies don't fail us, all of that. And then here's this line here. So as you see the lyrics and the ones written there in blue, he says this, maybe, he's asking this question, maybe it's a better thing. Maybe it's a better thing to be more than merely innocent, but to be broken and then redeemed by love. As we look back and say, oh, wouldn't it have been amazing if in some way, somehow, we had just stayed Genesis 1 and 2 and we're completely innocent. And it's not that God is saying, yeah, I actually like sin and I'm for it. No, no, there was active rebellion against him that had to be punished. But what if on the other side there is this, we would look back and see there's a world that's bent and there's broken in all of it. And that to be broken then redeemed by love, to know that God is working in and through all circumstances to bring about our joy and peace. What a marvelous story. And my friends, as Martin Lloyd-Jones said at the very beginning, our opportunity is not to hide from the pain. We are to mourn with those who are mourned. We can be honest with our stories. We should not tell somebody if they say, how are we doing? And you're just in a really bad spot. There is an invitation to be honest. And yet there is a story to tell about how God is bringing about redemption, how he's working in and through all things. And that story... That story that you're part of, because every single one of us has brokenness, ways that we are broken and fractured, things that we have done and things that have been done to us. And to know that God is working to, be, to bring redemption, even in ways we may not comprehend, and it might not always be in this lifetime, that is the story that we will sit around in the new heaven and the new earth, and we will tell that story, and we will give praise to God, and we will have things that were like, that was so painful, and that was so hard, and it's not to minimize that, but we will then have God's perspective to be able to look and see, like, look at the ways that he's been at work. And so Jesus uses this analogy, I don't know if you, you caught this, as he begins to just say, hey, let me, let me give you something that some of you guys might be able to relate to. Now, what's fascinating is he talks about giving birth to a bunch of dudes, all right? And so he tells his disciples, he's like, hey, picture like when a woman gives birth. Verse 21, a woman is in labor, and she has pain because her time has come. Women in the room that have gone through this, I think, would validate that. Yes, the scriptures are true, right? There is actual pain, even with the medication and all the things that might come with it. There's pain there. I will always try and say, I've had kidney stones. I get it. And my wife was like, shut your face, right? Like, that, just stop right now, all right? And so, anyway, um, you have this, this imagery that's used, and there's this pain and this sorrow. And then there's this, this moment, right? And it's this baby that is presented to, this newborn that's presented to the mother, and she begins to just be mesmerized, staring into the child's eyes, counting the, the fingers and the toes, what color eyes, and looking at that, and the amount of hair, I mean, all of those things. And it's not saying that there wasn't pain. I don't think you talk with any woman that just that would say, oh, no, there was never any pain. No, there's pain during, there'll be pain after, but what Jesus is driving at, the reason he's using this illustration is to say there's something that is so overpowering, so glorious, so magnificent that in that moment you suddenly forget about that because there's this new life that has been brought forth. And God is in the business of bringing new life. 
It's the language that we saw all the way back in Jesus' interaction in John 3 with Nicodemus. Like, we're called to be born again. Like, this is what our God does. He brings new life. When there was only death and there's only pain, he brings forth new life. And so what we are dealing with, yes, there's pain, but know this, that God, this redemptive story, some way, somehow, he promises he's overcome it all, and he is writing a beautiful story. And we get to be part of that, and it's submitting ourselves and saying, Lord, I don't understand all of this. I wish I knew more than I, than I do, but I am trusting you. And that's what he's inviting the disciples. Trust me, I'm going to go away, but then you will see me. And then I'm going to go away again as I ascend to the Father. But in the same way I came back with the resurrection three days later, one day I will come back. And that's the space we live in right now. And yes, there's pain, and yes, there's sorrow. But we are people that wait expectantly, knowing that Jesus is going to come back. And the pain and the sorrow and the difficulty it is the labor pains. This is what Romans 8 speaks of. Like all of creation is groaning. That imagery is used throughout the scriptures. But what is coming is this new life. And when that happens, the pain, the suffering, like, it, it'll, we'll just be, we'll forget about it. We literally will be so overwhelmed and overcome. And so what Jesus does, he says, okay, so there's joy, yes, in the midst of trial. He's not shying away from that. But then he also speaks of there's this joy that, are, that is found in prayer. And we did a, a series on, on this a, a few weeks ago and this invitation. What are particular habits of joy? What are things that help cultivate joy in us? And I know for me, when I fail to engage in prayer, when I fail to see it as the gift that it is, like there's a correlation. Like I struggle to find joy when I'm not going to the scriptures and being reminded of the truth and when I'm not taking advantage of the fact that the God of the universe wants to hear from me, that he cares about what's on my mind. And he cares about what's on your mind and on your heart. And it's not a call like, well, you better pray to be a good Christian. If you want God to love you, you better be committed to these things. No, no. It's rather, it's just this gift that we have. And Jesus is reminding us of this. He's saying, my friend, because of what I'm going to do, you are going to have access. This unhindered like, access. You just pray in my name. And the Father listens. He says this, anything you ask in my name, he will give you. And you will receive so that your joy may be complete. That for Jesus, this invitation to prayer is directly correlated and tied to joy. That you have a heavenly father that wants to hear from you. If you're wondering like, oh, what do I do the rest of my day? Like maybe spend a few moments connecting with him, offering up the things that you're celebrating, the things that are confusing, the things that are painful. If you're ever like, I don't know, can I, can I vent? Can I be frustrated? My friend, like, go and read the Psalms. You will find more Psalms of lament than any. There'll be times where the psalmist is shaking his fist at the heavens, at God, who is so, he's just bent out of shape. He's frustrated. He's ticked off. If your picture of God is like, I don't know if he'll be able to handle that, that is a weak God. That is no, that's not the God of the Bible. The God of the Bible is like, bring it. Bring me all your pain, your suffering, your confusion. I want to hear from you. And so there's this invitation. Will you ask in Jesus' name? I don't know what it is, but I know this. You have things that you carried in here this morning. And the invitation again and again and again is to bring that before the Lord. And this can raise questions, right, of like, well, if anything I ask, it's going to answer. No, the invitation is to pray according to the nature and the character. When it says in Jesus' name, it'd just be a way to say, like, we understand, like, a bit of like who he is and what he means and what he represents and to pray according to like his purposes. 
When you pray in alignment with God's kingdom purposes, you can be assured, like, yes, God is answering those in his timing and in his way, but you're aligning your prayers. And so you can bring your pain, you can bring your confusion. Part of the reason we have this access is because Jesus, as we will see here as we journey through John, is one that would even go before the Father and be pleading and praying. And it's like it describes as like sweating, like as if drops of blood. I mean, it's just this intensity. It's like, can this cup, he knows what it's going to cost him. He's like, can this cup pass from me? And Jesus' response, though, in this prayer is, not my will, but your will be done. And because Jesus was faithful to the will of the Father, we have this access. And there's this really interesting line as we continue in this. Jesus is wanting to make sure that we understand that it's not just him that loves us. There's not this disposition here of God being like, um, that Jesus would have to plead and be like, all right, come on, Dad, I, just give them one more shot. Like, they're not that bad. Like, there's not this disposition that, that God the Father is like, oh, okay, on a technicality, I guess I have to listen to you now. And Jesus went and did his thing, and now I'm obligated. Like, that's not his disposition toward you. It's one of, of love. It's this fatherly affection. This is what Jesus begins to, to speak of as we look at these particular verses. And he's talking about this invitation. He's like, I've spoken these, these things to you, right? Um, he's like, you'll not ask me anything, um, but I, truly I tell you, anything you ask the Father in my name, he will give to you. And he continues, um, I'm not telling you that I will ask the Father on your behalf, in verse 26. And he says, for the Father himself loves you because you have loved me and have believed that I came from God. That line, though, I'm not telling you that I will ask the Father on your behalf. Like, what in the world does that mean? It's a way that Jesus is communicating to us, listen, the, you're going to tell him. Like, you're going to have access to the Father. And this Father loves you. I've been reminded of this in this, this past week with some of the studies that we had and looking ahead. And a number of you are in our partnership class, and we're going to be spending some time tonight even looking at Luke 15 and the parable of the prodigal son. You see the father there with a son who has rebelled, a son that communicated to the father, I wish you were dead. I just want your stuff. I don't want you. I don't give a rip about you. I want to be free from you. And after squandering all of his inheritance, all of his wealth, he does what? If you know the story, you know, as Jesus tells this parable, that he gets a speech together and he's just hoping that he can be accepted, not as a status of a son, but just as a servant, so he might have enough to live on. And as he gets a long way off from the house, we're told what the father has been doing. And it's this picture of the father who is on the lookout for his son. And when he sees them off in the distance, he does what would have been culturally so dishonorable that he would have like pulled up like basically the, the clothing that he had, and he begins to sprint towards his son, and he envelops him, and he kisses his son, and he welcomes him, and he throws a party, and he puts the ring on his finger and the robe, and he does all of these things. When Jesus is talking about this, he's wanting us to know in no uncertain terms, the Father loves you. You have access. That, that is the picture. He's not angry at you. You're in Christ he sees the righteousness of his son Jesus that's been given to you. He wants to hear from you. There is a joy that is to be found. We need 
that picture. Like I need that. I need to, to know that that is God's perspective, disposition, his posture toward me. That he runs after us, that he pursues us, and he lavishes us. And it's not just a little bit. I mean, it's extravagant grace. The father that would give us his son. What a beautiful picture. And as these verses come to a close here in 26 to 29, then we also see there's this joy that is found, I would say, in Jesus, like the promises that he makes and in his power. John is writing these words, and he wants us to know, yes, we are up against difficulty. There are forces that are at work, not just in your heart, but also out in the world in, in both things. And there is difficulty and pain and brokenness. But know this, there is one that right now is at the right hand of the Father. He's in the place and the position of all authority. You need not worry. There's this joy. Look with me at verses 29 to 33 again. So his disciples said, look, you're now speaking plainly. You're not using any figurative language. Now we know that you know everything. So they seem to be getting it, right? But then Jesus responded to them, do you now believe? And it's a bit of like, really? You're saying the right things, but do you really believe? Because if you really believed, if you were fully surrendered to me, if you had more than just sort of this lip service, intellectual sort of assent to it, if you really trusted me, surrendered to me, when I need you, you wouldn't bail. When I ask you to pray with me, you would stay awake. When a little girl asks you if, you're, if you belong to Jesus, you wouldn't deny me, not once, not twice, but three times. You wouldn't all scatter. So he says, do you now believe? But he says, indeed, an hour is coming. It's this way to speak about Jesus' death and has come when each of you will be scattered to his own home and you will leave me alone. So these are the words. This is what is going to come. And so as he writes these things and he's talking about this joy and he's talking about this peace and he's talking about the ways that he has overcome, remember again, like, and what's so encouraging in this like, John is one of the ones who ran, right? Like, he's one of the disciples. He's implicated in all, all of this. He's not perfect. He doesn't get it all right. They're literally sitting down in, under the inspiration of the Spirit, like, writing the biography of all the ways that they messed up. Or wonder, like, hey, can I trust the Scriptures? Who would write that, right? Hey, let me write this way that makes me look terrible, Unless, of course, you understood how much you failed and sinned and how broken you were, and it just makes the reality of the gospel and who Jesus is all the more glorious. And that's the end game, that God would get his glory and that we as people, we would have this joy because it's not about what we do. If that was the case, man, we are in a bad, bad spot. But it's about God and his work. And then Jesus says this, I've told you these things so that in me you may have peace. You will have suffering in this world. You can bet on that. You can take that to the bank. You can count on that. But then he says, be courageous. Or in some translations, take heart. I have conquered the world. So as Jesus looks out over the brokenness, when he uses this word world, we need to talk about that for just a moment. It's tied very closely. There's these terms that get used in the scriptures, and they have multiple meanings. Things like the flesh, the world, and what ultimately leads to true joy. The flesh would be like our disordered desires. It's not bad that you and I desire things. 
The call is not to get away, away from all desire, but rather to recognize where our desires, where our loves, where our affections are disordered. So it is a beautiful thing for you to want to work hard, but if your desire to work hard at your job leads you to neglect your children, that is a disordered desire that does not honor the Lord, right? Like we can have all sorts of good, good things, but they are disordered at times. And so the flesh then represents this disordered desires. And then the world, when Jesus uses this language here that he's overcome the world, it doesn't mean he's overcome this beautiful creation. He didn't look out and be like, ooh, I messed up with the ocean and the beach and the mountains. I got to get rid of that. That's not what he means. That's one translation of the word, the world, this cosmos. It also can mean, we read it earlier, even in the assurance of pardon today, John 3, 16, for God so loved the world. It means he loved humanity. Well, he's not talking about, like, I have conquered humanity in the sense that like he's just getting rid of all of us when he's talking about the world it's when the flesh the disordered desires become normative meaning they get normalized and now there's just this whole system of thought that says this is the right and true way to live so john writes a letter in first john chapter 2 verse 16 says this for everything in the world in the cosmos the lust of the flesh the lust of the eyes. This, this is disordered desire. And the pride in one's possessions is not from the Father, but is from the world. Do you see how these things go together? And so when Jesus speaks of this, he's saying, I have come, and we, there are so many disordered desires that have led to a normalizing of all of these things. And he's like, I have conquered that. And it's not just out there, oh, this big bad world that did, like, these have been normalized in my heart. Are we being awakened to the reality of all the patterns that we just say, well, it's no big deal? Or we minimize that particular sin and we think, no, 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 well, everybody does that. We are allowing the world to disciple us to what is normal, what is true and good and beautiful, but rather we should be looking to Jesus. He is the one who informs how we are to think and how we are to act to follow the way of Jesus. In his new book, Live No Lies, John Mark Comer, a pastor in Portland, said this, the world then is what happens when Adam and Eve's sin goes viral and spreads through a society. The result, the distorted becomes normative. Sin then is recast as any number of things, freedom, human rights, reproductive rights, quote, the way things are, nature, science, boys will be boys, anything but sin. And so Jesus comes on the scene and is like, we need to call it what it is, and I have come here to overcome the world. Those that have studied church history and psychology and sociology would, would say, even those outside of the, the realm of Christianity, for the longest time we lived under an Augustinian worldview, which would mean this, St. Augustine, right, that the biggest problem is we've got these disordered desires. At our core, we're not just thinking beings, we are lovers. Like there are things that we love, we are creatures of desire, and yet... Our desires are all out of whack. And so the calling then is to embrace what are the good and beautiful and true desires and to help put to death through the power of the Holy Spirit those disordered desires, to repent of those things. And that was a dominant worldview for many centuries until in the late 1800s, early 1900s, a man comes along by the name of Sigmund Freud, all right? And now, rather than an Augustinian worldview, we live under a Freudian worldview. And if you're like, I don't care about any of this, here's the thing. 
Everyone today thinks, no, I'm just being true to myself and I'm doing this. You know, you're following a dead guy named Freud. That's functionally what you're doing, right? And his whole thing was like, there are these desires and the reason you're unhappy is because you're suppressing those desires. The libido, like, is he talking even sexually? But it played out in all sorts of other facets. And so our culture today operates with this mindset that the, the sin actually is to tell somebody that that desire is disordered. Rather than say, no, no, there are these disordered desires, that's of the flesh, and it's leading to this pattern of normalizing. We basically live and operate, and it's not just out there, it's here present in the church. We think that we're just being true to ourselves, we're following a dead guy named Freud, and we are literally going around saying, you can't tell me what to do. I've gotta be true to myself. That's the world that we live in right now. That is what has been normalized. Just pay attention to that this week. Not in a posture of judgment, but more in like, oh, in what ways have I been caught up in this? It's about me and my perspective and my truth rather than following Jesus, who's the way, the truth, and the life. Joy is found in following Jesus. And the world continues to tell us, no, joy is found in you doing what you want to do with who you want to do when you want to do it. It's disordered desires that get normalized, and it has robbed us of joy. I guarantee you no one could get up and make a case for, hey, we've been following the way of Freud, we've all been following our hearts, and look at all the joy that has brought in the world. The joy is found in a glad submission to Jesus of repenting of the ways that we've made it about us, where we've embraced the lie. It's remembering the truth. We'll close with this in Colossians chapter 2. It says this, you were dead in your trespasses and in the uncircumcision of your flesh, He made you alive with him and forgave us all our trespasses. He erased the certificate of debt with its obligations that was against us and opposed to us and has taken it away by nailing it to the cross. And this Jesus disarmed the rulers and authorities, these powers of the world, and disgraced them publicly. He triumphed. He overcame them in him. That is the good news. I was dead. Me following my heart, my desires, what I think will bring joy is just a long litany of things that we just list out the certificate of of my sins, of, of death. And Jesus nailed that to the cross. He paid for it. He conquered Satan's sin and death. There was what appeared to be, did you hear it earlier in the text? Jesus says, you're gonna have sorrow, my friends, and the world is going to rejoice because they think They're on the winning side. Satan, the enemy, the deceiver, the murderer, the father of lies, thought that he had won. He's a vanquished foe. Like literally, like, I'm not sure you should feel tons of empathy for him, but it's sad, isn't it? It's like, he still thinks like he's doing something. He's like, no, you have been defeated. You have been overcome. Jesus is at the right hand of the father. He has defeated the enemy. That's what Colossians chapter two, that is what Jesus is telling us here. Be courageous, I have conquered the world. He's saying be courageous, take heart. Like grab a hold of your mind and your heart and your affection and, like, and be reminded of the truth. Not how you feel in the midst of pain and suffering and difficulty, right? 
but rather like what is the truth? What is normative? What is the true ultimate reality? And it's the life, death, resurrection, ascension, and the one day coming back again, Jesus. He's king of kings. He's lord of lords. He will wipe away every tear, and we will gather for the feast forever around the table, and there will be a joy at a level you and I can't even fathom right now. And we will tell the stories of God's redeeming love. Like, that's what we're invited into. And so will you and I be courageous? Because all of this, we've got to remember, is in the context of mission. Jesus is getting the disciples ready. Sending the Spirit's going to come. He's calling them to be fruitful. He's saying, I'm the vine, you're the branches. There's this call to bear fruit. There's this call to see the kingdom expand. And it will take courage, but it's not found in yourself. It's not you rising up and getting a good plan together or me doing that or even us collectively. Rather, it's taking heart, it's being encouraged, and it's remembering this is the truest thing we can possibly know. It's the life of Jesus. It's the gospel. It's his dying in our place. It's his rising again. It's the new creation. You and I can be courageous to the extent that we remember that. And so, friends, I'm going to close in prayer asking that the Lord would help us to remember that, to celebrate that, to repent of the ways that we have drifted away from that, where we've been distracted, where we've allowed circumstances to have the final word. Maybe, may we be reminded as we sing songs together, we are singing, we are declaring the truths of what God has done. We're also gonna participate in this meal together. So I'll pray for us and I'll give us some instructions here. But know that all of this is meant to nourish us for this mission, to encourage us, to help us be people that take heart, to find courage in the finished work of Jesus. So let me pray for us. Heavenly Father, thank you for your kindness, your grace, your mercies that are new every morning. Thank you that right now, as we pray in Jesus' name, that you hear us, that you're a heavenly father that runs after us, envelops us in your love and your affection. Thank you that there's nothing that we have to do to try and prove ourselves to earn your love. We thank you for all that your son Jesus has accomplished. We ask, Holy Spirit, that you would bring conviction where it's needed, that you would lead us that we would find joy in repentance. But when we hear that other voice, that voice of condemnation, would we know that that is not from you because there's no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. So lead us in true confession of repentance. Remind us of the truth of who we are in you. Help us to rejoice and to celebrate even now together as God's people that this is the true story that we're part of. May we find deep and lasting joy in that. And so God, we do pray that in this, you would get your glory. And we ask that we, as your people, would experience that deep and abiding joy. We pray these things in Christ's name. Amen.